0: I think we can all agree that our teenage years can be quite volatile at times. I mean, it's an era of great change, both physically and emotionally. And suffice it to say, it can be difficult to navigate through that sort of energy. Now we all had our own ways to cope with this influx of emotions. For some, it was blaring heavy metal music in our childhood bedroom. For others, it was dressing in all black and binging horror films. Yes, I do admit, I'm guilty as charged on both counts, and I'd be willing to bet that a few of you were right there with me. But hey, this rebellious sort of nature is really quite common during adolescence. In a general sense, that is. Although, under rarer circumstances than our own, the spirit becomes more prominent, if even inexplicable. As I'm sure you may have guessed... It's this very phenomenon that brings us to today's topic. You see, while most of us were consumed in a world of teenage angst, there was one family who was dealing with somewhat more dire circumstances. At first, these oddities seemed to come by unpredictable and spontaneous happenstance. It was the kind of activity that could send you running from your home. To put it bluntly, the spring of 1958 was a strange one for the Herman family. But what's even stranger is that two teens sat at the center of it all. Oh, and they had no idea what it is they were doing. I'm Courtney Hayes, and you're listening to Haunts. Stay tuned. Before we get into the nitty-gritty of this story... I think we first need to set the record straight. So let's start by laying out a basis of understanding for the term poltergeist. I'm sure most of you've heard it before. Whether it be from Spielberg's cult classic horror film or from an experience in your personal life, well, it's very unlikely that this is the first time the phrase is being introduced into your vocabulary. Now, I will say that I often hear the term poltergeist being used synonymously with the word haunting. And while that's technically true, at least to some degree, well, you and I both know that this sort of haunt is much more enigmatic than your regular run-of-the-mill ghost. So, that presents the question, what exactly is a poltergeist? In its simplest form, The term poltergeist accounts for hauntings that are associated with physical disturbances. Derived from a German phrase which translates into English as knocking spirit, poltergeist activity is often identified by inexplicable knocking or rapping. In the presence of a poltergeist, inanimate objects may be liable to levitate and move on their own, or even disappear entirely. Some reports even claim that poltergeists have the capability to cause physical harm, often pinching, biting, hitting, or even tripping the individual whom it is haunting. Others report the presence of foul smells, electrical issues, and even spontaneous fires. Simply put, poltergeists are a bit more aggressive than your average haunt. Now, I should mention that there are differing theories on where poltergeist activity originates. Some of my sources, for example, claim that poltergeists are spirits, or even non-human entities, that are hell-bent on, well, raising hell. On the other hand, there are many who believe that a poltergeist is no more a ghost than you or I. You see, there is a theory in parapsychology which claims that poltergeist activity is, in all actuality, the physical manifestation of a person's emotional stress. Spontaneous recurring psychokinesis, as they call it, suggests that bottled-up stress is sometimes unconsciously projected outwards as mental energy. This energy will then manifest as a physical disturbance on the surrounding environment. Theoretically speaking, this phenomenon is most commonly observed among teens and young adults, which of course is all thanks to the highly emotional stressors that come with adolescence. So, there you have it. Poltergeist activity in a nutshell. But even still, there's quite a bit of ambiguity here. In light of that, let's refocus our lens back on the Herman family, who just so happened to experience this very phenomenon nearly 70 years ago. And hey, by the time we're through... Maybe we can make some sense out of these very blurred lines. The air was brisk when James Herman returned home from work on the afternoon of February 4, 1958. He had likely been hoping for a warm welcome from his family, perhaps a hot meal to fend off the frigid cold of the Long Island winter that had not quite yet given way to spring. But instead, James Herman was in for a bit of trouble. You see, earlier that day, Herman's wife Lucille had witnessed something remarkable inside their home. Terrifying, but remarkable all the same. It was around the time that the Herman children, Jimmy and Lucy, had returned from school. According to Lucille's testimony, the three of them were intending to spend a bit of quality time together when they heard the sound of popping, echoing from various places around the residence. It was troubling, to say the least, a far cry from the usual ambient sounds of an ordinary home. So, the Hermans fanned out and began to search although they didn't need to look very far to find the source of this mysterious popping. All around the house, the Hermans found tops, lids, and bottle caps, the likes of which had evidently belonged to various household items. These products ranged from the mundane, such as common cleaners and toothpaste, to even the spiritual. In fact, Lucille had been keeping a small bottle of holy water in the bedroom, and even that had been opened and spilled out onto the dresser. I can only imagine how bewildered James Herman must have felt as he listened to his family frantically relay this story. Of course, he wanted to believe them, but he hadn't seen these oddities with his own eyes. And even then, there had to have been some sort of logical explanation. After all, bottles didn't just open on their own accord. So, he instructed his family to keep calm and to not tell a soul about the incident. That should have been the end of it at least as far as James Herman was concerned. But in just five days, this bizarre activity would continue. And this time, it proved to be too much for even James to ignore. The Herman family was just beginning to recover from this strange affair. It had been nearly a week since Lucille and her children first heard the popping of bottle caps in their home. Unfortunately, there had been no further incident. Yes, all seemed right as rain when the Hermans sat down at the dinner table on February 9, 1958. That is, until they began to hear an eerily familiar sound. There it was once again, the undeniable sound of caps and lids being ripped from their containers, The noise echoed around them as their supper began to get cold. James Herman put down his fork, opting to swallow a bit of pride in that moment. Then he got up and excused himself from the table. The Herman house was a complete and utter mess. That much was quite clear to James as he searched each room in terror. Bottles, lids, and a myriad of liquids had been spilled out along the floor and furniture, It couldn't have been the children, as he had previously suspected, and surely his wife wasn't behind the madness. The house had been clean when they sat down for dinner, and yet this mess had come to be in a matter of moments, all while the family sat together around the dining table. Dumbfounded, James likely felt that there was nothing he could do. Well, that is aside from calling the police. So the family waited helplessly for the deputy to arrive all while their very own home was being torn apart around them. There is no way that Officer J. Hughes could have been prepared for the scene he was walking into. When he first got assigned to the call at the Herman residence, well, this so-called disturbance was described as a joke. So needless to say, Officer Hughes was more than a bit skeptical His disposition was only reaffirmed when he walked into the Herman's living room, where he discovered that most of the evidence had already been cleaned up. Still, he politely took the family's statements, nodding along to their story and asking questions when appropriate. Then, just as Hughes felt sure that this was all an elaborate ruse, he heard a strange noise coming from the bathroom. So, it seemed, the popping had returned, whether Hughes believed it or not. Officer Hughes followed the Hermans down the hall, and even he had to admit he was more than a bit intrigued. This gave way to sheer surprise when he peeked his head into the bathroom, because right there in front of his eyes, a bottle of shampoo was thrown from its place in the shower, just as a bottle of Kyopectate was thrown into the sink. Again, there was no way to explain it. The entirety of the Herman family had been right there in front of him, in full view as the event occurred. So, at least from where Hughes was standing, it was utterly impossible for the family to have faked this. It was real bona fide paranormal activity, right there, in the flesh. So, Officer Hughes sat in the bathroom, in a state of disbelief, likely asking himself one sobering question, how on earth was he going to explain this back at the precinct? In the coming weeks, a handful of unsuspecting guests bore witness to the bizarre activity at the Herman residence. And all the while, these incidents were becoming more aggressive. On the afternoon of February 15th, for instance, the Herman children were watching TV in the living room with their adult cousin, Marie. When all of a sudden, a porcelain figurine was thrown across the room by an unseen force, the figurine hit the floor and made a loud crashing sound as if it had shattered. But to their amazement, the children found that the figurine didn't have so much as a scratch. Just 5 days later, on the evening of February 20th, two police officers were once again visiting the Herman residence when they too witnessed similar activity. It was approximately 9:45 p.m. Lucille Herman was on the telephone Her husband was sitting right next to her. Their daughter Lucy was upstairs in her room, and Jimmy was putting his schoolbooks away. There was a bottle of ink sitting closed on the table, but right before their eyes, the officers watched as the lid popped off its seal. Then, in a matter of mere seconds, the bottle shot across the room, spilling ink out onto the living room floor where it landed. Now the officers did make a formal report about the incident. And as near as I could tell, these records were passed back to Detective Joseph Tozi, who was overseeing the Herman's case. But from where James and Lucille were standing, well, it seemed that there wasn't much that law enforcement could do about their situation. It was around this same time that they began to notice that the bottle of holy water had once again become a target of this haunting. On one occasion, even... James found the bottle spilt out onto the bedroom floor, and when he went to retrieve it, he found that it was warm to the touch. Perhaps it was this very incident that led the Hermans to the church, seeking out the help of Father William McLeod. Now, the Hermans had always been devout Catholics, and as such, they were sure that a bit of, let's call it spiritual encouragement, would succeed in the areas where law enforcement had failed. So, on an otherwise ordinary afternoon, in the spring of 1958, Father McLeod joined the family at the Herman residence. Carrying his own bottle of holy water, the priest walked through the house, blessing each room as he went. Once again, James Herman thought that this would be the end of it. But all too soon, the activity recurred with a vengeance. And so the Hermans were back to square one, with very few places to turn to. Law enforcement was incredibly limited in their knowledge of how to handle an apparent poltergeist, and the church was just as unsuccessful in their efforts. So now, all the family could do is wait for another to come to their rescue. I think it's safe to say that things at the Herman residence had gotten more than a bit out of hand by now, the family had exhausted all of their resources, and even still, the activity continued to wreak havoc in their home. And to make matters worse, this pauper poltergeist was beginning to gain traction in the media. From Newsday and Time magazine to the New York Times and even the London Evening News, the Herman story was being blasted out to thousands upon thousands of dedicated readers. And I can imagine that this must have felt somewhat Degrading at first. I mean, the story itself was really quite sensational, and there were a fair few who saw the Hermans as frauds. Oh, and let's not forget that James Herman had tried to keep things quiet back when the activity first began. But all the same, the story had gone public. And while the Hermans may have been a bit resentful at the time, well, it was this very media frenzy that would be the answer to their prayers. You see, it was these headlines that brought the Hermanns case to the attention of the parapsychology laboratory of Duke University. Yes, you heard that right. And so it's time we bring some science back into this equation. As I mentioned at the top of the episode, there is a theory in parapsychology which claims that poltergeist activity is actually a psychic phenomenon, one that is often associated with preteens and adolescents. Now, as we all know, James and Lucille had two teens of their own, and as far as Jay Pratt and William Roll of Duke University were concerned, this meant that the Hermans were the perfect candidates to study this theory. So, in the spring of 1958, the Hermans opened their home to Duke University. Pratt and Roll stayed with the family for weeks at a time, documenting each incident as they occurred. Throughout their investigation, these researchers witnessed an array of seemingly impossible phenomenon, between moving furniture, levitating dishware, and the all-too-familiar sound of popping bottle caps. It's safe to say that Roland Pratt had their hands full to research and eradicate the haunting that plagued this family. Well, that is until the evening of March 10th, when just as quickly and mysteriously as it began, all of the activity ceased. There was a stillness in the air that the hermits hadn't felt in over a month. And just like that, the pauper poltergeist was gone. Okay, by now you're probably wondering, what exactly was the pauper poltergeist? And hey, I'm right there with you. I mean, in all of my years researching the paranormal, I can honestly say that I've rarely come across a case where such immense activity came and went without an apparent cause. Now, fortunately for us, Pratt and Roll were able to shed a bit more light onto this subject, because in the summer of 1958, they released a 45-page report on the pauper poltergeist in the Journal of Parapsychology. Throughout this report, Roll and Pratt outlined a number of possible causes that may have been behind the activity. These theories, per se, ranged from mundane physical aberrations, such as high-frequency radio waves or unusual ground movement, to stranger explanations, including paranormal activity and, you guessed it, psychokinesis. Although I should probably mention that Roll and Pratt were not able to discredit the possibility of fraud. After all, there were a number of occasions when the activity could have been reasonably faked by a member of the Herman family. Now, I will let you form your own opinions there. But if you're interested in learning more about their findings, I encourage you to check out Roll and Pratt's report, which I will have linked in today's show notes at hauntscast.com. Oh, and while you're there, make sure you check out the section on psychokinesis I think you'll be intrigued with what they had to say. Even in spite of the mass skepticism surrounding this story, many believe that the pauper poltergeist was the most discussed case of the 20th century. By now, we're all well aware of the mass media coverage this case received on a global scale. But there is one final piece of this story that I think is worth bringing to your attention. It had been 24 years since Jay Pratt and William Roll released their findings to the world. And for a moment, it seemed that this story had been all but forgotten. That is, until the movie posters and TV commercials began popping up around the country And with that, Steven Spielberg's upcoming project, entitled Poltergeist, became one to watch for horror fanatics. Even to this day, Poltergeist is likely one of the most celebrated horror movies in history. In fact, it holds four Academy Awards, including the title of Best Horror Film, the year of its release. And of course, it's all thanks to that mysterious popping sound that plagued the Herman family back in the spring of 1958. This episode of Haunts was written and produced by me, Courtney Hayes. If you've been enjoying the show so far, I would greatly appreciate it if you could leave us a review. A lot of work goes into each episode, and supporting the show in this way really helps us reach more listeners each week. It's entirely free and takes about 30 seconds, and it would genuinely mean the world to me. Also, if you're interested in learning more about today's topic... I greatly encourage you to check out the show notes section on our website at hauntscast.com. This is the location where I share my sources and provide any visual aid that may be referenced during the show. Finally, I would love to connect with you online. You can find me on Instagram at hauntscast, or you can join our email list for updates about the show. Thank you again for listening, and until next time, happy haunting.